Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Martin Oliphant had always hated horses. Their staggering stupidity, their unexplained, unexpected, and ever-explosive snorting, the way they twitched distinct patches of their skin to dislodge flies, the way they shied madly at the most innocuous occurrences, a golf umbrella at 50 feet, a leaf falling from, of all places, a tree, a bale of hay stacked exactly where it was supposed to be, stacked, and had been stacked for the last month. Martin Oliphant hated horses, but he didn't, it must be said, wish horses dead. It must be said because horses died around him, died or almost died. And it was horses, dead ones mostly, that blazed the trail to his life-forging passion. Horses brought Martin to cowboy poetry. And horses, live ones mostly, were cowboy poetry's central theme. This is G.P. Gottlieb, and today I'm talking to author K.T. Sparks about her debut novel, Four Dead Horses. It's the story of Martin Oliphant, who becomes enamored of cowboy poetry as a teen growing up in Pierre, Michigan, and strives for 30 years to make his way to the annual Elko Cowboy Poetry Confluence. His life doesn't turn out the way he thought, and it takes the death of a world-famous horse in his hometown some 30 years later to propel Martin to the place he dreamt of so long before. Hi, KT. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. It's great to be here. I love talking to readers almost as much as I love reading. Mm. Your debut novel is one of the most unusual coming-of-age big journey novels I've ever read. How did you come up with this story? It was a collection of a lot of things. You know, a lot of authors, I think, um, have something they want to write about or a big theme. Um, I'm one of those people who I get a scene or something that happens to me, just a little thing stuck in my head. And that's what happened with this novel, very much so. Um, It was, uh, I was at a dude ranch. Um, that my family has gone to for twenty the last 25 years um, down in Southern Colorado. And um, I wasn't able to ride because um, I had broken my knee. Um, and, uh, and I was sitting and a guy, usually guests stay there for a week, but this guy was visiting. And I think with his older parents, he was, he, he must've been, he was in his fifties, I would say. And um, they were just coming by, I think, just to look at the place and, um, and, he was, I watched him looking out over, um, you can watch the riders go out from the big lodge. So he's looking out, watching these riders go out and he's kind of dressed in like a short sleeve polyester shirt that was screaming for a clip on tie and a, you know, a pair of like dockers and, and just inappropriate shoes. He, he looked as, as little as, you know, like a Westerner or a cowboy as possible. And he had this look and he, he was overweight. He looked like he'd never been on or near a horse. And he had a look on his face, like, you know, like he was seeing himself down there and he was seeing himself in, um, in a cowboy hat and riding off into the sunset. I imagined he was like, you know, sort of had some horrible, awful office job in Topeka or Cleveland and, um, nothing 
nothing wrong with Topeka and Cleveland, but um, but that's that's where he was. And he, but he was imagining himself in that moment as a real cowboy, and he was really there. And that became my main character. Um, and he actually first inhabited a short story um, that was um, published um, several years ago. And he was he was kind of it was not really much of the same stuff, but the same guy. Um, and and you know from there I just started writing. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's rare to meet a Michigan-bred protagonist with a sixty-inch waist. Who dreams of reciting cowboy poetry? So that was the birth of Martin Oliphant, right? So right. can you can you say more about him? Um, he is um, he is a guy. Uh, he 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 grows up the same time I grew up in the small town, um, which is across the lake, basically across Lake Michigan from Chicago, where I grew up. Um, though I renamed it, um, and he's a guy who has. He has big dreams. He he sort of he has dreams that he feels are much bigger than his his small town. Um, he's he's kind of an intellectual. He's going to end up going to the University of Chicago um, out of out of this little town. Um, he's ready to you know to move into those dreams. And he um, he he just he's he's almost like a Walter Mitty type of character who he imagines himself sort of rising above his his existence in a town where um you know i i think uh he's he just it, he just doesn't fit in in any way um and uh and he spends a lot of his life sort of imagining himself moving on to some greater things or the greater things that he thinks he's really ready for but in a sort of kind and gentle way i mean he's he's not a jerk <laughs> he's he's yeah. um he, He's uh he's 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 kind of a dreamer and he's kind of a sad sack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's discuss your title. How did you decide on four dead horses as opposed to um, cowboy wannabes or return to Elko? You know, the initial title was um, Road to Elko, um, and uh, which sort of sounds like a. a, a song. And I, one of my very good friends, um, who's also been a mentor and help. Um, and has helped a ton on this novel. Um, C.J. Hauser. She um, she wrote uh, the. Um, uh, oh, God, let me start that one again. One of my friends, um, who is was a mentor of mine, uh, helped me come up with this title. Uh, its initial title was uh, "Road to Elko," and. She, uh, this this person C.J. Hauser, um, she's a, a wonderful author in her own right. She wrote a, a, a viral essay a few a couple of years ago called "The Pair, uh, The Crane Wife," and uh, she's about to come out with a book of essays with by the same name. Um, she she was reading it one time and, and she was reading through and she said, "You know, Kate, the uh, sort of cost in equine lives um, in this book of Martin's journey seems to be adding up." She said, I, "I've counted, you know." four horses that have died by the end of this. And she said, you know, why don't you use that as an organizing principle for the book? Because it, before it, it had been organized a lot like it is now, which is sort of a, a Martin in his teen years and then Martin in his later years. But, um, but we hadn't quite, I hadn't quite sort of thought of the fact that, that there were in fact horses dying regularly throughout the book. And I, you know, I, I said, I, I kind of love it. But I, 
I said, you know, I'm, I'm, will people read a book called Four Dead Horses? And she said, you know, a lot of people will pick up a book called Four Dead Horses and say, this is not something I want to read. She said, but the people who will like your book will look at it and say, this is something I want to read. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's, I, you know, and Road to Elko sounds to me a little bit like I liked it, but it sounds a little um, like, a, I don't know, a country song or something. Um, and and not, it doesn't have the kind of um, black humor that I think the book has. Yeah, that black humor, that is true. What intrigued you about cowboy poetry? Um, nothing initially, um, because <laughs> <laughs> when I first, when I wrote the first short story about Martin, um, I, uh, I had in, he, he sort of got, he was at a dude ranch and he was sort of in a, um, uh, not a battle, but, a, 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 uh, he was very jealous of the dude ranch's resident cowboy poet. And I made that, I thought I made it up. You know, I thought like, I didn't think there were such things as cowboy poets. I thought I had made up this sort of funny thing that the, as a dude ranch would hire a guy who would be paid to be a cowboy poet. And, um, and I later, after the story, I mean, literally after the story was done um, and I was workshopping it, um, somebody said, you know, this is a great character and you should, you know, this, this guy who is jealous of a cowboy poet, you know, but he's from the Midwest and he's just as little cowboy as possible, you know, you should write more about it. And I started looking into it and discovered that there's this huge world of cowboy poetry. And I'm really embarrassed to say this because I have fallen in love with the world. And it's a, it's a sort of performative folk art that is, um, you know, the NEA recognizes it. There, there are, there are some, maybe one very famous sort of national Baxter Black, who's a national cowboy poet, um, who people might have heard of, but it's a really um, rich uh, folk art culture that goes on. It's sort of based around um, Elko, Nevada, but in all the ranching communities. And it's something that's that has a history that goes back to before, um, sort of right after the Civil War is when it got started, and then had a big heyday in, at the turn of the century, um, and then sort of disappeared um, once the singing cowboys came along, the Roy Rogers of the world until the eighties when, um, when a group of, um, ethnographers and sort of professors, um, they, they looked, they, they started finding a few of these guys who were still writing and they pulled together the first, um, what's called the national cowboy poetry gathering, which is what the confluence, the national pop, cowboy poetry confluence that Martin is so obsessed with um, is based on. It's an actual thing. It's happened every year since 1985. And, um, and the very first one, there were all these guys who were writing cowboy poetry, but they weren't talking. They didn't know that other people were doing it. Um, and it, it's, it's an incredible art form. So I, I, I've come to love it. I, you know, when I did it initially, Part of it was I thought I was making up something funny. And the other part was I really am not a big fan of research. So I thought, like, how if I make this up, I don't actually have to research it. I can just make <laughs> up what cowboy poetry is. Turns out it has a rich history. Wow. And and I've become kind of an expert on it um, <gasps> for outside the cowboy world. Um, and mm. and and gladly so, even though even though research isn't usually the thing I, I want to do. I'd rather make stuff up. Yeah. I get that. So you mentioned obsession. That's another ongoing theme, obsession. There's a lot of it. Um, Martin's family, his father is obsessed with destroying people's businesses and his mother is obsessed with a 
one of the neighbors and Martin is obsessed with um, cowboy poetry. Can we talk about the parents? Sure, sure. Um, you know, they're, they're very 1970s parents in some ways, um, really not paying a lot of attention. They're, they're sort of small climbers and they are not, I want to say very clearly, because um, as I said, this the book is based on my hometown. They are not based on anyone in my hometown. <laughs> they're, mm. they're, they're, okay. um, they're more of, um, both of them are people, I mean, the dad is just sort of very singularly focused on business and, and making money. And and the mom is very singularly focused on status, getting sort of gaining status in, in her social world. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, I think for Mar- they basically left Martin alone. He doesn't really he doesn't really help them. He doesn't really hurt them. They're not mean to him, but they um, they they kind of pursue their own lives. And and there was a thing about seventies parenting, and it was it's so different. Um, you know, I know you're a mom, and um, and and so am I. And um, we. It was just a different time growing up then. And parents were really sort of kids were kind of a little bit feral. They were sort of raising themselves, and and um, I think that's the the main thing with his parents. I think he he uh, Martin loves his parents, and I think that they love him and as much as sort of small minded people of that era would love kids. They fed him. They you know they 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 sort of you know. Uh, made sure he got to school on time and everything else. But, um, but they weren't really involved in his life and they didn't, um, they just went off and sort of did their own things. Well, they didn't really understand him, but they did understand the brother, Frank, cause he's a tennis guy and that right. they had all kinds of accolades and all kinds of time for that. And, and that was kind of uh, a currency, you know, sort of being good at sports and being good, especially at tennis, which was so big at that period. Um, and it was so big among, um, at least in the town I was growing up, it was very big among the sort of elite uh, in the town. Um, they, uh, you know, so he, he sort of brought something to the table and, and Martin, you know, they, they were embarrassed by him. They just weren't sort of cognizant of him. He didn't, he didn't really, he didn't really help or heard anything. And he was, he sort of bought into that. So he was, he was just going to leave, you know, he was going to go to the university of Chicago and he has in the beginning, there's a couple times where he's, he thinks about like, well, maybe he'll, his dad will call on him to, to, you know, sort of be part of the business. Um, and he'll impress him because he's going to the university of Chicago and there's so many wonderful economists there. And he's going to, you know, he sort of, his, his Walter Mitty like imaginings, even before he's introduced to cowboy poetry are, are already drive him to sort of, those kind of thoughts, but, but he's, you know, he's quickly shot down on that kind of stuff. And, and, and he seems to be the kind of guy who's very used to being quickly shot down and that. And he just, you know, it moves on. He he moved on and he had his sight someplace else. He was going, he was going away. He was going to go um, to a different world. Mm-hmm. Just to confirm KT, there's no actual Bitsy Newport in your hometown who, um, is the grand dame of the tennis club and everybody wants to be like her. There's absolutely nobody like that. And there's okay. No, okay. my, my parents actually were in a, you know, I so said, yes, thank you for that. Because, because I know there's, I have lots of friends left there and they'll read the book and you know, it's um, 
I I want to make sure that people know that. Um, I mean, there definitely was a tennis culture when I was growing up. Um, I play tennis. Um, I play tennis on the University of Chicago tennis team too, um, which is uh, is exactly you know people say no small feet. It's actually a very small feat. Basically, you had to own a racket. But um, but you know, it was there were there was a tennis. You know, there were uh, there were country clubs where their tennis was played, and there was um, my parents belonged to a tennis group, which was you know, the nicest people. Um, and, and, and they, you know, they played all the time. I, I, I think what I did is I just turned that into a sort of a darker version of what that could have been if it weren't, um, if it, if it hadn't been made up of, of really some of the kindest and, and, and really fun people that, um, I'd ever met. So, um, so it, it it's, you know, it, it is definitely not anybody real. In fact, it's funny because um, I a long time ago I was at a workshop where um, people were talking about uh, you know, about writers and should you copy people and and I always remember Pam Houston the writer um, was leading the workshop and she said you know um, I wouldn't she said because even writers need to go someplace for Thanksgiving <laughs> yeah um, yes okay but. Let's say Julie Newport, Bitsy's daughter. There's a, a lot of distinction. Are you telling me that there's nobody in your entire town, whoever, you know, was the star athlete and then gained weight? Uh oh. Um. No, I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure that that did happen somewhere along the way, but but certainly nobody I knew. Um, okay. But, but yeah, no, there was no. It, it, it's definitely not, but. Um, that's not based on anybody that's, you know, that's, um, Julie is, Julie's a, a complicated character. I mean, she's, she's somebody who, um, I guess complicated isn't the right word. She's just, she's just somebody, every kid who has been sort of actively harmed by both, um, both food culture, but also by, you know, by a mom who is, is more than neglectful, like uh, Martin's mom, but, but you sort of outright, um, uh, outright dangerous to her daughter. Um, and, and, and that's just something, that's something I've seen, you know, not real people, but you've seen it. I've seen it in a lot of places, not just at that time and place. I, I thought you handled that really sensitively. Um, it was very clear, but you never came right out and said it. It was very clear that Bitsy was just the worst possible, uh, handling Julie's issues in the worst possible way. But she seemed to, um, she pulled herself together. Julie became her own person. She did. And, and that's, and I, I wanted that to happen. You know, the other thing that, that I, I always, and I wondered about putting it in the book, but Julie doesn't reject her mom either, which is, which is, sort of interesting and a little sad. I mean, I don't, I don't want people, I didn't want it all to be like object lessons. She's also a hero, I thought, because the way she handles Martin's mother who is dying of cancer is just really beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and she finds this strength and this compassion in herself, you know, that, um, 
uh, that I think makes her strong for a really long time. Um, and I, and I think makes her into, to an interesting character. And, and also, you know, she, she was sort of what Martin just in, in very general, she was what Martin wanted to be what maybe Martin's mother wanted her to be when she was younger, before she gained weight, when she was this star athlete, you know, and, and she, um, and, and it didn't work out for her and her, you know, those, those early dreams that were sort of to be this, this, like her mother, the kind of queen of this very small town, um, were wrecked when she gained weight and her mother sort of rejected her. But, um, but she, you know, she's a person who sort of pursued dreams more realistically. I, I kind of almost, you know, I've lately been thinking it's, it's, it's interesting the different way, the different way that Julie and Martin go about pursuing dreams, you know, mm-hmm. Julie's just much more practical. It's kind of, I, I, I kind of feel like Martin as a, as a male is allowed to have bigger dreams and oh. more impractical dreams than, than Julie you know, was. Yeah, you could be right. Martin's younger brother, Frank, doesn't <laughs> at all seem like he's bound for any kind of success. What's up with him? Uh, he's just, he's just kind of adult. I mean, he's the guy we all know who, you know, um, who gets a lot of stuff because his dad either has money or, you know, he's been told his whole life he's going to be fine and great. And he sort of walks into everything. I mean, he might be just be, you know, white male privilege embodied. Um, and, and he, and he never, he has zero recognition and he, and, you know, as life often works, he's not punished. He gets, he gets stuff and he has the house and the beautiful wife and, um, and, and he doesn't think much about it. Um, and so in a way too, I kind of like, you know, looking at him and say, here's a guy who I guess realized his dreams in air quotes. Um, but at the same time, like, was that so great? I mean, is he happier than Martin who, you know, who is, is struggles with his own wild dreams, but you know, does, is, is Frank really, is, is it really that great a life, even though he's got, you know, he's, he has everything and nothing bad happens to him. Yeah. Cancer plays a role. Can you say more about that? Um, I, you know, I had, um, I had breast cancer in 2008 and, um, and some pretty grueling treatment. Um, and I'm fine now, um, which is great, but you know, I, I, and I started, I guess I started writing this book, you know, a few years after, um, after that diagnosis. And, uh, it, 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 it was on my mind, you know, it was just on my mind as something that, um, that is another way that dreams get, um, that dreams get derailed. Um, and so I was thinking, and and that's a lot with Julie. She talks at one point about how hard it is to sort of, even when you're well, even after you've gone through treatment and, and you've been sort of sent off, how hard it is to sort of stop thinking about having cancer and start thinking about, um, about, dreams and, and life and everything else. And, um, and, uh, I, I think I was probably feeling a lot that way at that time. Um, and mm. so that's, 
that's and 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 also it's you know it's a terrible disease. I also watched a, a, a friend die and a family member die during that same period, and um and and I think Martin's mom, you know, I wanted Martin to, you know, Martin Martin stays home at, at, for a very long time and takes care of his mom while she's dying of breast cancer, and you know I wanted that. Um, I wanted, I wanted it to be a big thing that Martin was, was doing and a big thing that Julie was doing cause she helps too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, 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 and in my mind at that point, cancer was just looming large and it was the big thing that they always say, you know, write about you, know, but, but it makes it sound a little bit like the book is, um, <laughs> is, is a sad cancer book, which is, it's, it's not. Um, no, you managed somehow to make it funny. And as a fellow cancer, breast cancer survivor, I, I, I'm pretty sensitive to it, but you made it funny. So kudos for that. <laughs> I know it's awful, but, but uh, as you know, I mean, it is, it's, it's very life changing. It's very scary. It, it affects everybody around you. And at the same time, you know, life with all of its weird absurdities keeps plowing along mm-hmm. and um and so i was trying to capture a little bit of that too i think you got it i think you got it how much fun did you have creating this novel um i i had well it just depends on what day you got me some days i hated it because it it, it went through a lot of drafts um and you're a writer you know how that goes i mean it sort of became a lot of different things and um different people were a lot in it and not like Julie has a much bigger role than she had initially. Um, and that was from feedback from a lot of people, especially women who said like, you know, Julie is, is an interesting character. Martin is, Martin is funny and, and he certainly is, you know, he's, he's unique in his whole quest, but Julie, Julie is real and we want to see more of her. And so she showed up a lot more in, in later drafts. But, um, but the funnest thing I got to do was go to the national cowboy poetry gathering and, and meet a bunch of these poets, cowboy ah, poets wow. um, that Martin loves so much and watch them perform. And it, it, I, I totally recommend it. Elko, Nevada, end of January, a lovely time to be in the, the high Sierra. Um, you know, it's, and it's in the middle of nowhere. And these guys, the, these guys are great. They're fantastic performers. They, they are performing poetry, you know, sort of out full regalia out loud to other cowboys also completely decked out. And they, and it's, it's just, um, it's they're they're doing it for each other. They're not doing it for, for anything, but the love of poetry, which, and, and the love of this sort of performance aspect of it, because they are performers. Um, and some of the poetry is really good, but the performances are just great. And you walk out of there and you're like, I'm, you know, I want to be a cowboy poet. I want to be with Martin and, you know, <laughs> recite in front of these guys. It's really a fun event. Well, KT, I, I'd be more likely to join you at Santa Fe for the Opera Festival, but it does <laughs> sound interesting. So tell me, what are you working on next? Um, I started another a novel. Obsessions are kind of my thing. And, um, and this is another novel, um, that is, it it, is so formless right now that, that, um, that it's a little bit hard to describe, but, um, but it is again, based on just sort of an event. And, um, there was in, in 1983, there was, I, I, I'm a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan until the nationals, Washington nationals appeared on the scene. But, um, 
I was at this game in 1983, a Cubs game, um, and it's called the Ryan Sandberg game. And it, it's famous among Cubs fans I'm, because I'm well aware of that game. Okay, great, great. Oh, um, I'm not a Cubs fan. I'm sorry to say I'm a, a White Sox fan, but go ahead. Well, <laughs> and, and, and we, we may have to just end the conversation there. But, um, but at, I was, I was at, at the Ryan Sandberg game, and it suddenly occurred to me, like, what, what if I sort of said another, what if I did a story where it's all around um, a murder that you know happens, um, or a, actually an arrest for a murder that happens at the Ryan Sandberg game, something that happens at that game. And it, it all sort of comes to a head at that game. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's probably going to be based again in, in the town of Pierre, though. I don't know if I'll call it Pierre again, leading up to that game. It's probably going to involve um, a mother figure who is obsessed with baseball as, um, and uh, a daughter figure who, gets who's young at that point but gets uh sort of involved with there's a there's it'll be a, a sort of type of a cult that actually does exist in my town um and it has for many years the house of david you've probably heard of it um no but wow yeah there is there's saint joe michigan has its own little cult um it, it was actually I, i'm not sure there's not very much left of them anymore but um but um and and then i'm going to try to tell the story you know, sort of back almost a little bit like Four Dead Horses is structured back then and now, but also from different perspectives. I want to do it as a, um, I want to do it as a, a, a sort of first person from the, the young girl who's, who ends up at the Ryan Sandberg game where her family is sort of put in turmoil because of a murder. Um, and then, and then in the future, um, I want to have sort of telling it at the same time, the future story where she and her daughter, who's a podcaster, um, look back into what happened at, on that day. And then, and, and then I also want to include the podcast that the daughter makes sort of like a serial type podcast uh, about her own family. So I, okay. it's just a sort of, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> you got a lot of work on your plate. You got a lot to do. Get to work. Wow. <laughs> It sounds wonderful. Keep me posted. I'm interested. And thank you so much, KT, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, this has really been fun. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author KT Sparks about her debut novel, Four Dead Horses. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.